Thank you. Uh, good morning again, church. Um, my name is my name is Ben. I'm uh, again. If you weren't here this morning uh, at the start of our service, if you're new here, I want to uh, welcome you. I'm one of the pastors here at Shady Grove. This morning, uh, we are going to be preaching from the scriptures as we do every week here at Shady Grove. So you can go ahead and pull out your Bibles or pull out your apps, whatever it is you use to follow along. Uh, if you are visiting us, maybe you don't own a Bible, you can take out one of those blue paperback Bibles in the seats in front of you. And uh, actually, that would be our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, we would encourage you to take that. And if the one in front of you is in good condition, we have some out there outside these doors at our front table. And so please do take that home and read it. Uh, this morning, we are con continuing our series in 1 Corinthians called Humble Truths for a Proud Church. And I'm going to back up a little bit this morning. We're reading a little bit from chapter one, a few verses, and then we're going to uh, get into chapter two, which is where we will pick up uh, this morning. And so let's go ahead and turn our attention to the reading of God's word, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And I, so starting in chapter two, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of, of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and how you speak to us through your word. And so speak to us this morning, we pray, and teach us to sit under your word in submission to it, rather than thinking ourselves wise and sitting over it, judging it for ourselves. So be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Why preaching? Why preaching? Now it's a question that probably keeps most of you up at night. <laughs> but why do you come here on Sundays and listen to one of us ramble on for 30 to 40 minutes? Why do you do that? Why do we spend, you know, 20 plus hours a week preparing a message to deliver? Why? Why preaching? Let me try and answer that question with kind of a brief detour through uh, Norse mythology. So uh, <laughs> I know it might sound strange at first, but so, you know, uh, so Norse mythology, you know, Odin the wise and, you know, Thor the, the mighty and, and Loki the, the treacherous and deceitful, you know. So there's, there's a story that goes a little something like this. Um, uh, Loki, you know, the treacherous one, uh, he uh, one night, he deeply uh, offended Thor um, through a night of... Uh, when he was drunk and uh, deeply offended him. And so he needed to sort of appease Thor and get back in his good graces. And so he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go throughout the world and I'm going to find the best treasures to give you and that'll, and that'll make Thor uh, forgive me. And so Loki goes about doing this by going to two different groups of dwarves and he basically tells them to get into a group of uh, a competition 
to compete. Who can make the best treasures for the gods? And so he had him, you know, make things like Odin's staff, and this is where Thor's hammer, you know, comes from, and all of these, these mighty things. But Loki, of course, he gets himself into trouble with his words, as he always does. And so he managed to make, he makes a wager against one of the groups of dwarves, and the wager basically is, you know, if, if you win, the dwarves, you get to cut off my head. But if I win, like, I get to keep more of the treasures, right? And so, terrible wager. Uh, and so, sure enough, uh, they, they go and present the treasures before the gods, and Loki loses, right? And so, he's supposed to get his head uh, cut off. And so, uh, he manages to weasel his way out, just like he always does. If you've seen, like, the Avengers movies, you know, picture that in your head, uh, weaseling his way out of the situation. But... The gods and the dwarves are so upset with Loki, like we're tired of your deceit and your treachery with your words, that they decide to uh, take a piece of leather and sew it over his mouth so he can no longer talk anymore. You see what I'm saying? And so that's it, right? And that, the, end of Loki's, the end of Loki's speech. Here's my point. <laughs> Here's my point. Either preaching is one of the most meaningful things for your lives, or it's one of the worst, most worthless wastes of your time, okay? If it's the latter, then you should sew up my mouth so I can never talk again, so I can't trick anybody into a land of make-believe. You understand? But if the Bible really is the Word of God, as it claims to be, and if preaching really is as important as, it, as the Bible says that it is, then preaching is one of the most valuable things, for your life. You see, God is a speaking God. And it's through his speech that he reveals himself to his creatures, that he enters into a relationship with them. We saw in Psalm 33, you know, the word of the Lord. In the Old Testament, if you think about it, that was one of the primary ways that God related to his people was the word of the Lord. And in the New Testament, we learn that the way we come to God is through the Word made flesh in Jesus Christ. And so what we find in the Scriptures is this astoundingly close relationship between God and the words that He speaks. And now, in our present age, it is preaching that is God's chosen method for the word to go forth, for his church to be built, and for people to enter into a relationship with him. So this morning, the sermon title is The Priority of Preaching. Priority of Preaching is what we're looking at uh, this morning in our text. And something new for me, normally I try to be a two-point preacher. Uh, this morning it's seven points. But before anybody worries, we're going to get it done in 30 minutes. And it's going to be uh, what is sure to be the first reported Mother's Day miracle, and you can all keep your 1215 brunch reservation. So let's jump into uh, point number one here with the priority of preaching. Point one, the challenge, okay, the challenge of preaching. We're at a point in Paul's letter where he's been dealing with this problem of divisions in Corinth. And, and what he's been trying to express is the divisions are contrary to the Christ that he has brought to Corinth through preaching. And so he says, not only though is the gospel message foolish, but preaching is foolish. The medium itself of the gospel going forth is foolish. And so you see, this is the challenge of preaching. To the world, it's foolish. And it's foolish because the, ta the task of preaching is to take the grand narrative of the scriptures, 
and to bring that to bear in a world that has a lot of other competing narratives and messages. You see, and the narrative of the scriptures that there is a king and that we are supposed to live our lives in submission to him and he says, aha, I will show you the way that this works. I'm going to come, I'm going to lower myself beneath you. Then I'm going to go to a Roman cross. Then I'm going to die. Then I'm going to be raised again to new life, defying all logic and all rational reason. And I'm going to say, all right, now, now follow me. This is what it looks like. Humiliation, exaltation, follow me, come on. That's foolish, right, to the world? That's foolishness. What are you talking about? And so Paul says here, to the Jews, to the Greeks, it didn't matter. It was a challenge because it was foolishness. And you see, the difficulty for us in the world that we live in is that we are often not aware of how influenced we are by other narratives. If you've been in our... Um, Tim Keller class here on Sunday mornings. We've talked about some of this. We're not even consciously aware of what has been shaping us to think, act, talk the way that we do. And so the challenge of preaching is to take this foolish message, foolish message and try to bring it to bear on our lives and to reorient us and to sort of get us out of these false narratives of the world and come into the one true narrative of the scriptures. In Corinth, it made no sense to either the narratives of Judaism or to the Greco-Roman paganism. It made no sense. And in the world that we live in today, it doesn't make any sense either. And the truth is, again, none of us are aware of how we are being shaped and formed. But the reality is, depending on where you grew up, depending on what family you were born into, what socioeconomic class, what background, what education, what news media source you listen to, all of that shapes the way you respond to hearing the word preached. None of us are free-thinking creatures. We're all shaped by something. And so the challenge then, again, is bringing this to bear. I often feel that preaching, it's like navigating a minefield, okay, especially in illustration and application because let's say if I ignore a hot-button issue, right, one group of people says, well, you're ignorant and you're uncaring, you're unloving, you're irrelevant. If I do speak to a hot-button issue, then another group of people says, ah, you're a social justice warrior, you're a Marxist, you know, like what, you know, so on and so forth, you see? It doesn't really matter, whatever, but how we respond to the preached scriptures is the narrative that we find ourselves in. And so that's the challenge, is bringing the foolish message, this foolish message of the, to the world to say this is actually the right way to orient our lives. So, that's the challenge of preaching, which takes us to point two, the compelling nature of preaching. Looking at verses 22 to 25 uh, in chapter 1. Now, when I say the compelling nature of preaching, I don't, of course, mean that preaching itself is compelling. I just, I just said the opposite, right? Preaching is foolish. What I, what I mean to say is that the correct response of the to the challenge of preaching is to try and make preaching compelling. And this is exactly what we see at work throughout the scriptures in the prophets and the apostles and Jesus trying to make this foolish medium and this foolish message compelling. And what it often looks like, especially in the New Testament, is through two, two things, an affirming and a challenging. An affirming of people, hey, this is, it's right for you to desire this, it's right for you to want this, it's right for you to think this way. But the challenge is you're going about it the wrong way. 
Paul, the Apostle Paul was a master at this. We see this throughout the book of Acts. If you look at how he preaches to Jews and how he preaches differently to the Gentiles, you see how he says, ah, here's what you want. Here's how, it's, how you're going about it the wrong way. Here's how you'll find it in Christ. And we see that even here in verses 22 to 25. You see what he's saying. He says, you Jewish folks, you're seeking power through signs. And you Greeks, you're seeking wisdom. That's good. Power and wisdom, those are good things but you're looking for them in the wrong place. You see what he says? He says, to those who are called, Christ is true power. Christ is true wisdom. He never says it's wrong to want power or wisdom, but if you're really going to find them, it's going to be in Jesus. And so you see, good preaching takes that form of trying to be compelling. So here's a story, uh, maybe the sake of self-humiliation to try and make this point compelling, all right? So uh, uh, an off lesson that we learn in preaching sometimes is if you're ever going to make an example out of someone, make sure it's yourself. So uh, I used to be really into um, martial arts, okay? Charlie's going to be really mad he wasn't here to hear this. Uh, (laughs) I used to be really into martial arts and uh, amateur kickboxing and mixed martial arts, all that kind of stuff. And uh, there was one point uh, I was getting into sort of like the jujitsu, you know, which is kind of like wrestling, uh, but uh, a little bit, a little bit different. And so I went to a, a real, like, legit Brazilian jiu-jitsu school, right? Like, where people, I like, really take this stuff seriously. And, I, and I'd done some work. Like, I thought I kind of knew what I was doing. So I show up, and the first person I'm partnered with is this little, probably like, 55-year-old uh, woman with gray, big curly hair. And I'm look, she's half my size, right? I'm looking at her. I'm like, really? Like. Like, this is, this is kind of, I feel like it kind of embarrassed. Like, I guess it's like what's, where's the challenge? <laughs> so uh, the, one of the lessons of jiu-jitsu and, and even wrestling some is it's not always about strength. So I'm sitting there and we, we're grappling and I'm grappling with this woman. I'm trying to, you know, you know, strength my way through this. And all of a sudden, you know, she's just sort of like a monkey, like, wrapping herself around me and so like next thing I know first she's like you know the half mount and then she's like slowly just sort of sneaking her way then she's in the full mount so I'm on bottom she's on top I'm like how did this happen right this isn't good and then all of a sudden she's sort of sneaking her way down and, and she's getting me into this this arm lock and I kid you not as she's getting her way down slowly she goes shh <laughs> like that and next thing oh, I tapped out I was out I had no idea how it happened That's compelling preaching. (laughs) You have no idea how it happens, but you come into it saying, I disagree. And then next thing you know, you're like, I believe this. Because as preachers, we're trying to get into people's worldview to sneak in and show them the gospel from the inside. We won't even want you to, in some sense, see that it's happening. And then, boom, all of a sudden the worldview crumbles and you see that Christianity actually is compelling. And that it has something to say for your life. Compelling preaching reaches for the heart. And that's what we try and do here at Shady Grove. And there's three reasons why we try and do that. Real quick uh, application. Three reasons we try and do that. Uh, First is because we want every person here, Christian and non-Christian alike, to have the scriptures implanted in them deeply from the inside of their hearts. And second, because we want you to have confidence that if you bring a friend or a loved one or, or a neighbor who doesn't know Christ, We want you to have confidence that if you bring them here, we're actively laboring to speak to them with the scriptures. And third, because we want to give you guys tools. How do I communicate the scriptures outside the church? 
We want you all to be equipped to do that. And so that's why we try and make our preaching compelling so you can take it outside these walls and grow uh, the kingdom of God in that way. So the compelling nature of preaching. Point three, the mode of preaching. So I'm looking at uh, verse one of chapter two. Paul says he came to Corinth proclaiming the testimony of God. And this Greek word here for proclaiming means public proclamation. So it was preaching. And he says that the message of, of, of his uh, preaching was the testimony of God. And for Paul, that meant applying the Old Testament scriptures. That was what he had, was the Old Testament scriptures. And so you'll notice throughout the New Testament how, how often uh, Jesus, the apostles in their letters, they use this phrase, it is written, or as it is written. And that's what they're doing. They're taking the scriptures, they're preaching them, and they're applying them into their cultural context. This is what we call expositional preaching. Some of you may have heard that word. Expositional preaching just means taking a text and trying to, to take out the meaning of the text and apply it into a cultural context. And while there is a, a place, a time and a place for more like topical preaching, taking a topic and, and preaching on that, or even a topical series, we believe that the steady diet of preaching for any church is working its way through chunks of text. Because we believe this is the model of the apostles, we believe it's the model of the, of the early church, and we believe it's the wisest model for the church today. So there's several reasons we do that. Again, because we think it's biblical, but more importantly, maybe practically for you, is because we want you to have confidence that when you come here, it's not just Charlie's house of fancy ideas or Ben's house of fancy ideas, but what you're getting is the scripture. You see, because good biblical preaching means that the text that the preacher is constrained to the text, the text is not constrained to the preacher. See what I'm saying? And so the mode of preaching labors to take texts and unpack them for our cultural context and to stick to those texts uh, as our, our steady diet of preaching in the church. So point four, the substance of preaching, looking at verse two. Paul says in verse two, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we needed to do a, a, a quick note of interpretation. Uh, what does he mean by this? Uh, you know, does he mean, uh, when I came to you, I only preached the crucifixion of Jesus? Is that what he's saying? Well, that would be, that would be a misinterpretation if we interpret it in that way. You, you don't have to get your, your too far um, in, in Paul's writings to, to see that uh, he deals with many more topics than just the crucifixion. I mean, even in 1 Corinthians, he deals with plenty of other topics. And so what does Paul mean here when he says, I only preached the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, by adding the word crucified, Paul means that even though the cross is humiliating, even though it's an embarrassment, even though the cross was deserved for the lowest of the low, even though it's an embarrassment for me to be associated with someone who was crucified, nevertheless, I'm preaching Jesus. See, what he's saying is, the knowledge of Jesus Christ is so important, I don't care that he was crucified. Crucified though he was, I preach Christ. So the substance of our preaching is Jesus. Preaching is incomplete until we display Jesus. This is the intent of Scripture for us to see Jesus. One theologian, he, he describes um, 
the scripture in this way. I think this is a really powerful way to think about scripture. He says, scripture is God the Father preaching God the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit. Scripture is God the Father preaching God the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit. And so another way to think about that is that Scripture is like a house. And it's not an empty house full of just empty doctrines. A person lives in this house. Jesus lives in these words. And so every time the word is faithfully preached, it's Jesus who you are being invited to take residence with. It's Jesus who we are saying, come, follow him. Come, belong to him. Come, take up after him and follow and believe in him. See, the force of preaching is this. Have you taken up residence with Christ? This king who has conquered sin and death and said, I'm showing you a better way. I'm showing you the way to God. Have you taken up residence with this Christ? If not, why not? Why not? See, this goes back to compelling preaching because there's always that obstacle, isn't there? Bringing Christ then in our preaching to bear on people's lives. Have you resolved to know nothing but Jesus, crucified though he was? Point number five, the weakness of preaching. Paul knew that the gospel of Jesus was foolishness. This message of the the king, foolishness. Even more than that, he knew that preaching was foolishness. And he knew that a simple, plain style speaking was going to be foolish, especially in Corinth. We know that that was one of the big problems for them was thinking that the most eloquent person was the wisest person. It's earlier in chapter 1, it would have been really easy for Paul as an educated man. Some people think, oh, maybe Paul wasn't educated. Not true. Paul was very educated. You read the book of Romans, uh, simultaneously beautiful, yet incredibly complex. Paul knew how to speak. He knew how to persuade. And it would have been really easy for Paul to rely on his own training, on his own persuasiveness to try and convince people of the gospel. But Paul wanted people in Corinth to see that it was not eloquence or rhetoric that won people to God, but that it is God who wins people to God. God wins people to God. And so for Paul, the the task was, I'm going to make myself as weak as possible. I'm going to get out of the way so that when people come to faith, they're going to know it was God who saved them and not me. Now, this doesn't mean wisdom, eloquence, persuasiveness. That doesn't mean any of that stuff is bad things. It doesn't even mean fog machines or fancy lights are bad things. If you want to use them, hey, go for it, right? If that works for your context, go for it. Apollos, who was referenced earlier in chapter 1, he was an eloquent speaker. He's never rebuked for it. The people are rebuked for relying on the eloquence Elsewhere, again, we see Paul's very persuasive. He says in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, and we have the scripture for that. In 2 Corinthians 10, he says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. 
Paul was very persuasive when he needed to be. But the point for Paul was that if we rely on persuasiveness, if we rely on eloquence, if we rely on wisdom, if we rely on fog machines or whatever the case may be, that's treason. That's glory theft because we are getting the glory and God is not. See, because contrast this then with the power of preaching. Point six, the power of preaching is the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, also we can refer to as uh, the one who often gets the shaft in our, in our teaching, forgotten about. The Holy Spirit is the one who provides the power for preaching. Jesus said in John 14, it's the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send to teach us all things and to bring to remembrance all that Jesus had said. It's the Holy Spirit that makes teaching and preaching effective. And so there is no real power in preaching where the Holy Spirit is not. And that means while preaching may be incomprehensible to the world, that does not mean it's ineffective. It may be incomprehensibly foolish to the world, but it is not ineffective. Wherever the Holy Spirit is at work, preaching is powerful. And again, this does not mean that the use of wisdom to best communicate our message, that does not mean it's not important. However, I found that the more we rely on those things, the more we rely on the slick presentations, the movies, the props, whatever the case may be, the more we are teaching people to rely on those things to determine a good sermon rather than listening for the Spirit of God. And so what we do here at Shady Grove is you know, we, we try and get ourselves out of the way so that you can really hear God's Spirit speaking through the preaching of the Word. One, uh, one pastor, he says, says it this way, Mark Dever, you might know him, he's a pastor down in D.C. This is what he says. He says, what you win them with is what, le- what likely you'll win them to. If you win them with the gospel, you'll win them to the gospel. If you win them with technique, programs, entertainment, and personal charisma, you might end up winning them to yourself and your methods, but it's likely that they won't be won to the gospel first and foremost. And so we endeavor here to get out of the way so that it is the Spirit who makes preaching powerful. And one of the ways that we do that together as a church is through prayer. That's one of the primary ways that the church works together to make preaching powerful. Charles Spurgeon a great uh, 19th century London preacher, some of you may know him, had a, had a flourishing ministry, and he, he's known as the Prince of Preachers, uh, quite, a, quite a title. Uh, when new visitors would visit his church, he would take them into the basement room of the church, and he would say, this is where the power of our church comes from, and it was a pray, prayer room. There were always people praying throughout the church service that God would move through the preaching, through the singing, and through the ministry of the church. And I have little doubt that the effectiveness of Spurgeon's ministry came from those prayers. Even the, the effectiveness that he still has today came from the prayers of his church over 100 years ago. You see, friends, if we want our preaching, our ministry of our church to be powerful, we must pray. We must pray. And so, a couple, couple points of application here. First, the reason why I put those catechism questions uh, in your bulletin this morning at the front is so that if you don't know how to pray for preaching, how do I pray for the preaching ministry of our church? That's a really good place to start. Tear that off, put it up on your fridge, and just pick one little 
piece of it and pray for us during the week. Please pray for us that we would be faithful to the preaching of the word and that God would be pleased to bring about a revival in our preaching ministry here at Shady Grove. Do you want to see people come to faith? Do you want to see our community transformed through the ministry of the gospel? Do you want to see your friends here grow in their knowledge and love of God? Then we must pray. We must. We must pray. And and one way we can do that together, uh, some of you may know, we have a prayer meeting uh, every Sunday morning. Uh, We start between 9 and 9.15, depending on when all four of us show up. And uh, you know what I would love to see? 20 people. By the end of the year, 20 people committing to come early enough to be on their knees in prayer for our service. Prayer that God would be delighted to work through the reading of the word, through the singing of the word, through the preaching of the word, through how we see the word in the sacraments, that God would send his spirit and move. But that's only going to happen if we really believe that God brings the power to his preaching, not us. If we are really helpless and relying on God alone, that's the only way it's going to happen. We must pray for the power of preaching. Finally, point seven, moving right along here. Finally, Paul says in verse five, the goal of his preaching is that your faith might not rest in man's wisdom, but in the power of God. The goal of preaching is a kind of spiritual maturity where we are empowered to shift our thinking, to see the false narratives that we've believed that these false messages that the world has implanted into our hearts, and to shift away from those and into the one true narrative of Scripture. That is the goal of our preachings, that we would all grow up together in our knowledge and fear of the Lord. Elsewhere in Paul's writings, Colossians 1, Paul says this, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Do you ever think about the fact that Charlie, Porter, Bruce, myself, the elders, when we, you know, we bite the dust, we kick it, we have to go stand, you know, up before Christ, and the books are open, and and how, how did you live? We have to give an account. Did we present you mature in Christ? It's a sobering thought for us. That's our task, to present all of you mature in Christ. And one of the ways we do that is through faithful preaching. That's our goal, is maturity. And so what does that look like for our lives? Our hope and prayer is that all of us would reflect Christ in such a way that we would make much of him and that others would be attracted to him through our words and through our speech. Jesus says that his followers are a light on a hill, shining forth light into darkness. And you know what that means? That means if you're a Christian here sitting in this room, then God has bestowed on you a higher honor than he's given to the sun, than he's given to the moon, or than he's given to all the stars in the sky. Because while they might illuminate the natural world, You have been given the honor of bringing light into the darkness of souls. That's quite the privilege, isn't it? We have been charged with bringing light 
into darkness. So let us hold fast to the things which are said in our preaching, in our reading of the word. Let us be fellow workers together in the battle as we endeavor to see the church grow and the kingdom grow and the love of Christ expanded forth into the world. By our way of life and speech, may we reflect Christ to others. For if we claim Christ, if we claim this spirituality, if we claim his virtue, if we claim his morality, then shouldn't we first be teaching it to ourselves so that we might not be hearers only, but doers of the word. And so may God be delighted to work in us in preaching. May God be delighted to transform our love for one another, our patience and our kindness for those outside of the church. May he be delighted to transform our our morality and to keep us pure from the world and the false narratives and the pollution that we find all around us. May he be delighted to transform our marriages and our relationships and our vocations and how we work faithfully unto him. And may he be delighted to teach us to sit under his word, to delight in his word, to delight in what he has spoken to us, that we may live according to him, to walk in his name, for his glory and his sake forever. Amen.